want to let you know this morning, uh, as you leave, as we continue this month, uh, and our Stephen ministers serve so faithfully, and we can continue in this month of, of kind of keeping Stephen ministry before us, uh, the um, Stephen ministers are going to be at the doors, and they're giving you a, a, um, a stress ball on the way out. I know none of you need a stress ball, but... Um, you are you're gonna to get one um, as you leave this morning. I've um I've asked for a bucket of them up here <laughs> because I, I thought they'd be great to keep handy. Um, well, I, you know I played baseball in high school, and um, I I think I still have a pretty good arm, and I'm gonna be watching today. <laughs> if you uh if you stop stop paying attention. Oh, off the back wall. Okay, it's the weight. The weight is off a little bit. I'm, uh, I'm coming for you. So, uh, no, obviously I'm not doing that. And I threw that long and high. But, but you are getting stress balls on the way out. And um, if you're going to have a little bean war with them, do it in the parking lot. Um, but uh, we thought we'd have some, some fun with that. So you can take that and squeeze it as you're um, going about the rest of your day. Um, what's that? Oh, I thought somebody said something. Sorry. If you're a football fan, you can squeeze it as you're watching your team play today. Um, we're going to be uh, in the Gospel of Mark again today. We've been in Mark a few times here in the last few weeks and, and spending some time with this story, this healing story. And, and this experience the disciples have in the midst of, of this healing story. We'll get to that uh, in a few moments. Maggie Tarasca, I don't know if that's a name that immediately jumps off if you paid attention to the news this week. Uh, you might have heard a little bit about Maggie's story. Uh, Maggie is a 17-year-old girl. She lives in uh, Massachusetts. And uh, this week, she was making her first solo flight as a student pilot. Some of you now are probably now connecting the story. You may have seen it. It was on the news. She was making her first solo flight from Beverly, Massachusetts. I think she was flying to Maine, though I'm not 100% sure where she was growing, but somewhere up in that way. And when she took off, um, most of her plane took off with her, uh, except the wheel. Her landing gear dropped. One of the wheels dropped, and so uh, she, fortunately, air traffic control saw it, and they immediately radioed this young lady and said, you know, you've lost your landing gear. So she started to double back in preparations for an emergency landing. Did I mention this was her first solo flight? <laughs> from, for some of us, it would have been our last solo flight. <laughs> and, and she circled for a while, in making preparations to, to land this plane. And, uh, and she did. She landed safely. That's the, the, the wonderful news of, of the story and did a remarkable job. But she'll tell you and did in, in some of the interviews I saw that, that, that it wasn't just her. I mean, it was. She was the, the, the pilot behind the wheel, but what she depended upon was the, the teaching she had gotten, what had been instilled in her by her instructor and the very 
um, calm and comforting voices of the air traffic control folks who got on to, to encourage her. And then finally, the voice of her coach, her teacher, her instructor, who also got to air traffic control and was able to get on the radio to constantly remind her of the lesson she'd learned, to remind her of the ability to had, to or the ability she has, to remind her of the giftedness she possessed, and all of those working together with incredible nerves of steel. I mean, just amazing for this young lady. Um, she made what is considered, apparently there is a textbook land, emergency landing. Um, I, there's nothing textbook in my mind about an emergency landing, but she did. <laughs> And, and she, she is and, and was okay. But it was that, that recognition that her gifts were being, if you can almost say empowered by the voices that were speaking into her life and, and reminding her of who she was and, and what she was capable of. That ability even in those moments to listen and to be receptive to that I think is a powerful lesson. And I think it's a powerful lesson for us that bridges us right into our scripture this morning, right into to this story in, in Mark chapter 9, because, well, we kind of get a glimpse of what happens when we start to tune those voices, or most importantly, that voice out, and that most specifically being uh, the voice of God. So we pick up at Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14. We're just coming on the heels of the... The, um, the transfiguration with Jesus on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and, and Moses and Elijah. We've come off of the mountain now. And this is, uh, this is where the gospel continues the story of Jesus' ministry. It says, When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of his speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire and, or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us. And help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed, and violently came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, 
This kind can come out only by prayer. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, speak in these moments. Challenge us in these moments. Draw us deep in these moments. Wherever we are, whatever's brought us here today, Lord, help us in these, this time together to experience your presence, to hear your voice, and to take whatever that next step is of faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a story around a story that's happening in Mark chapter 9. The, the inner story, the core story, if you will, is a, is a healing story. It's Jesus healing this young boy whose father brings him to Jesus, healing him of this, of this spirit, of, this, of this, this spirit that drives him to convulsions and seizures and, and, and these just horrendous episodes in his life that has plagued him since, since, as the father says, since he was born. And, and so that's kind of the core. But then there's a story on the outside of that story, and it involves the disciples. And it involves the disciples in their inability to do what Jesus does, their inability to heal the boy. Now, at its surface level, we might not be too startled by that because we think, well, Jesus is the one who did the healing. Most of the time in the Gospels, that's what we read. Jesus is, is the agent or the, the instrument of, of God's healing, the one who speaks those words and performs those, those miracles. But if you, if you kind of go deeper in the, the narrative of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you kind of go deeper in your understanding of, of the timeline, you, you would know, or you will learn, that the disciples had been doing this kind of healing before this story took place. If you go to, to Luke chapter 9, you read the story of Jesus sending the disciples out. And he says to them, I give you the power to heal and to drive out spirits. I give you this power to do the same kind of healing that you have seen me do. That has already happened in the narrative. That happens prior to Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi, which is one chapter before in the Gospel of Mark. So we know that this has happened. And in Luke chapter 10, after Jesus then sends out the 72, they come back to Jesus and they are amazed at what they can do in Jesus' name. Luke chapter 10, verse 17. We are amazed at what we are able to do in your name. So they have been healing and, and doing powerful miracles in the name of Jesus. Yet, in this story... They can't do it. In this story, the father comes to them first and asks them to do the healing, and they're unable to drive out the spirit. And I, as I study that, go, why? Why? I mean, they, they wanted to know why. In fact, we're going to get to that at the end. They say, why couldn't we do it? And that's the same question I ask. Why couldn't they do it? And I think it draws on that one question Jesus asks them that we don't get an answer to in this section of the gospel. And it's this. When Jesus comes off the mountain and he's beginning this journey again, remember he says they were arguing. The scripture says they were arguing. 
They're arguing with the teachers of the law. They were probably arguing among themselves, because that's fairly common. And he asks them the question, what were you arguing about? And don't lose sight of the fact that he doesn't get an answer. Parents, you know this. When you ask your kid, what'd you do? And they don't tell you. That's a sign that something has gone on that they don't want you to know about. Well, we do that too. I do that with my wife all the time. Um, Because I don't want to lie, so I try to pretend I didn't hear the question, right? Right? So, they don't say, but, but if you go a little bit further in the chapter, a few verses after where I stopped, it reveals, there's a verse that says, they didn't tell Jesus, they didn't answer, because they didn't want him to know. They were arguing about, and this is not uncommon in the Gospels, they were arguing about who was going to be greater. Right? Who was more important? Who was at the top of the chart, the, the ladder, if you will, on the hierarchy? And, and we'll get this when, when James and John's mom comes and kind of tries to jo- you know, put in a word for her boys and, and where their place would be. They, they very often become consumed with their own status. Human nature. It's human nature. And, and that's what's happened. They've done these remarkable things. God has used them in powerful ways. And what's starting to happen is this very subversive shift. They're starting to take their eyes off of God. And they're starting to become more enamored with their own giftedness and abilities, their own wonderfulness. Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way, right? And they, and they fall into the same pattern that we see in the Old Testament with the people of Israel. So often God uses them and works through them in so powerful ways. And as they do, they start to begin to believe that they're responsible for their own success. They start to believe they're the most important ingredient in all the blessings that they have received. And they begin to take their eyes off of God and move away from faithfulness to God. And it always comes with tragic consequences. Well, here the disciples, I believe, are starting to fall into a very, very similar pattern. They're taking their eyes off of God because if you are so consumed about your place, your status, your recognition, your, your um, position, then you're just looking at number one. You're looking at, it's a me, me, me. That's what it is. Me, 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 me. And you cannot be focused on God's work in your life when you are more concerned about your own recognition and position. And in doing that, they begin to limit, they limit by their own choices what God is able to do through them because they lose sight of where their power comes from. And I believe at the heart of this story is a story about our need to recognize our absolute dependence upon God, especially when life gives us situations that are very hard to handle. This is a hard situation for them to handle. This is a heavy situation. This is a father who passionately cares about his son, a son who's in desperate need of healing, and the disciples don't know what to do in the face of the situation because they can't find the power to heal. Now for us, It may not be that kind of situation, but the reality is that we often find ourselves in situations. You know what? Here, perfect, perfect example. We find ourselves in situations we need a stress ball. 
Because life gets hard and we find ourselves in situations and, and circumstances that are difficult and we don't know how to handle it. We don't know how we're going to manage and we don't know where our power is going to come from. And God wants us to remember that our power comes from Him. We must, in faith, first and foremost, be dependent upon God. And that's where the disciples failed. They stopped being dependent upon God. And it's not just their challenge and difficulty. We do the same thing over and over and over again in our own walks with the Lord. Because we are right to, to have co confidence isn't a bad thing. Certainly recognition of your, your, your value and your giftedness is not a bad thing. But what happens is in that pendulum of faith, when we start to become so enamored with our own press clippings, however that manifests itself, we start to move further away from our dependence upon God. And that's the lesson the disciples had to learn. They needed to be dependent upon God. They needed to be dependent upon Christ. They will learn this lesson, but they haven't learned it yet. They, they absolutely go back and read Acts. You will find they learned this lesson. Over and over, you will hear them say things like, in the name of Jesus, you are healed. In the name of Jesus, you are forgiven. In the power of the Holy Spirit, you are forgiven. They'll learn the lesson, but they're not there yet. And as they become so inwardly focused, they lose sight of the power of God at work within them. They become arrogant in their own abilities. And when they become arrogant, they become impotent to do anything in the face of this great need. Now, this is where there's such a wonderful contrast in the story. Because then we get to the inner part of the story. And we get this father that comes to Jesus in a very different place, spiritually and emotionally. And he comes at a different place on the spectrum from the arrogance of the disciples. He comes in complete brokenness. Desperate for his son to be made well. And he comes to Jesus not with great faith, but in recognition of great need. I want you to hear that. Not in great faith, but in recognition of great need. And hear me say this. God meets us in our places of need. God meets us when we come to him recognizing that we need you. And so he brings this son and he asks Jesus this. This is not a question of great confidence. I want you to hear what he asks Jesus. He says, if you can do anything... Please do. This isn't, I'm sure you can. There are those, those encounters that Jesus has with people who come to him and say, we know you can do this. But, but that's not what this is. If you can't do anything, and Jesus basically says, if, if, he says, anything is possible for those who believe. That's a challenge. And then hear how the man answers. I do believe. Help my unbelief. That is, I think, one of the most powerful prayers you will find in the entire Bible. I do believe, but help my unbelief. I, I think when you read that, it's like, I, I do, but I don't. I, I do, I, I think. I want to. I, I'm, I'm kind of desperate. Help me. Help me believe. Now, why? I mean, he's on that opposite end of the spectrum. It's an honest, vulnerable real and raw prayer to God. And, and I think when we 
begin this journey of faith. I don't care where you are. Maybe you haven't even begun that journey. Maybe you're just here kind of checking this out. That's okay. But what we start to learn, the more we walk in faith, the more that we, we feel our strength, our, our, our faith develop, the more we realize how far we have to go. The more we realize how far we are from where we should be. The longer I walk with Jesus, the further I feel from the experience of, of completion that won't come on this side of eternity anyway. I do believe. Help my unbelief. I don't know that I've ever preached a sermon on this text, but I will tell you it is the most common prayer that I've prayed. This verse has shown up more in my prayers than any verse in the Scriptures. I do help my unbelief. As opposed to the disciples who've gotten to a place where they've become so confident in themselves, this Father is on that opposite end. And when He does, in His raw vulnerability, in His honesty before Christ, miracles happen. Because He's not coming believing He has the power to do anything. He is completely dependent upon Jesus. And God honors that dependence. God honors that vulnerability. God honors that honesty. I think a lot of us, me included, can learn a lot from learning how to be honest with God in the struggles of our faith. Because if you've never struggled with doubt, then tell me the secret, because I haven't figured it out. And most of the men and women, in fact, let me back that up, all of the men and women I read about in the Scriptures, they didn't figure it out either. And we could go into a whole new sermon just on that fact. It's honest and openness to God. It is a lesson on Dependence. When, when Jesus says to the disciples at the end, when they ask him, why couldn't we do it? He said, this only gets driven out by prayer. Well, you know what? Prayer is never about you. Hear me say this. Prayer is never about you or me. We bring our needs. We bring our, our petitions and our joys. and our sorrows. We bring them. But prayer is always about God. If it was about you, you wouldn't need to pray. You could self-reflect. It's always about God. And that's what Jesus is saying. You've lost sight. You lost sight of God in the midst of this. You need a humbling, and they got it. We sometimes need that. We need to be focused on God. We need to be honest with God. When we do that, we become instruments of tremendous power, not of ourselves, but of the Holy Spirit working through us, as the disciples would be. But, but the lesson of, of the text is learning to be dependent upon God and learning to do that through prayer through an honest reflection, an honest conversation with God, I do believe, help my unbelief, being broken and raw and transparent to God to allow God to come in and be at work and be real in our lives. Tuesday, I was, in, I was at Edgewater, United Methodist Church, for a preacher's meeting with pastors from our district. And um, there was a pastor there by the name of uh, Dale Locke, Dale pastors a church on the other side of the state. And uh, I, I know Dale a little bit, not real well, but, but uh, he, was, he was sharing some of the things that he's learned. He started a church in um, Palm Beach County, I think about 20, 22 years ago. It is now one of the fastest growing churches in Methodism uh, and, and having tremendous impact. But that's not why I even bring it up. He shared about 12 years ago, I think it was about 12 years ago, early part of, maybe 2004, uh, he was about out of ministry. He was about done. 
He'd done about 10 years of leading that church, and he had nothing left, and things weren't going well, and he felt he had failed. And he said he just fell broken before God, just broken before God in his vulnerability, in his emptiness, in his fail, in what he perceived as his failure. And, and I'm not saying that he wasn't depending upon God. I'm not saying that his faith was weak before. But, but it became a point, as he told the story, that he recognized the only thing he had to give was what God was giving to him. The only thing he had to offer was God. He had nothing of, him, of his own. And he said that brokenness, that, that falling before God, that recognition of, of I believe, but, but I'm not where I need to be. I believe, but help my unbelief. That kind of prayer became a turning point in the ministry of the church, but most importantly, in his own life and faith. And from there, the impact has grown. But it started with a complete dependence upon God, a recognition that that's all he had. So often, the powerful work God has for us and wants to do through us begins with that. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Brothers and sisters, let us be a people that are that honest, that transparent, that real before God, that willingness to be open to his power at work within us, his voice that speaks his truth to us, and his spirit that will change the world through us when we depend upon him. I do, I do, but I don't. Help me to get there. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we, we pray that your Holy Spirit would strengthen our faith, strengthen our dependence upon you, deepen our prayer, and empower our impact to the glory of Christ. We do all things to your glory, and we do it by your power. And we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen and amen. Friends,